five, four, three, two, one. Welcome everyone to a brand new episode of Off the Track Podcast. Um, I'm joined again by Irvin De Silva and John Dempsey, and today we have a new guest, Mr. Ernie Sears. Yes, sir. Um, Ernie Sears. I'm a senior here at USC. I run track and field as well. Um, I'm a captain on the track and field team, and um, I'm looking forward to this podcast with these these young men right here. Yeah. So recently, there's been a lot of stuff going down in the media, in sports, particularly Bubba Wallace. He's basically taking the brunt of all the hate uh, that's been going on, being thrown his way, and he's taking it pretty well. I think a lot of people would have crumbled in his position, but he is holding up strong in a predominantly white sport, I would say. I mean, it's it's weird because, like, if you go back to Alvin Kamara, like, a week ago, he was one of the ones that's saying he didn't even know there was a black person in NASCAR. I didn't know. I didn't know. A lot of people don't <laughs> follow. I mean, I personally don't follow NASCAR like that. But it's the fact that um, it was him and, like, it was his garage. I mean, that's kind of why it got to the level, the attention that it did. But, I mean, it coming out that it wasn't, like, specifically intentionalized to him i don't think that's that i don't think that resolves anything because the fact of the matter is nothing was ever told like he didn't experience that he was told by nascar he was told by like his own crew that that was there he never experienced it himself so like that's where the like the subject and the headline came out of and that's why i think like nascar coming out and fbi coming out saying it happened in like 2019 i don't think it's worthy of the reaction that it's getting because a lot of people are saying like oh it's a Jesse Smollett like incident again but in fact he never was involved in it what was the official ruling from the FBI Uh, it was it's a so it's a rope in the garage yeah kind of closed the garage door however um Bubba like never had access to it like the way that the kind of bubble is set up in NASCAR right now like, the drivers don't have access to those garages. They go from their RVs to their car. Yeah. Mm. Well, it was, while he was the one that said, like, they found a noose, like, he himself didn't find it. He was told by NASCAR that it was found. Oh, okay. This rope that was there. However, what people have come to, like, why they thought it was a noose is because while all the garages had the same rope, his was, his was like, the only one that had a knot in it. Yeah. Like, and it's, it was a very small, like, not a very small loop, but the, it, the image is still there. Yeah, and yeah. It was, I won't say it's coincidental, but the fact that it was his garage is why, like, the message was there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And NASCAR president Steve Phelps, he said that those types are not, are not normally seen, and they're at the track's garages, so for that one to be tied like that since October was okay. their last race there is... Kind of fishy, kind of odd, but it is in Alabama. Yeah, <laughs> it's Alabama. It's the fact that, like NASCAR itself, I mean, for one, it, it kind of was with me like a couple weeks ago when they banned the Confederate flag in the sport. Like it felt like it was almost a bit of a Mandela effect because in turn you thought the flag would have already been banned. Yeah. So like that was one where while it was the national headline, you're like, huh, why the hell is this a headline? Because you thought it would already be gone by now 
And I think that combated with the presence of Bubba Wallace and driving the Black Lives Matter car and being the only black individual in the sport and then having this happen at his own garage, like, yes, it is. It, it should have gotten to the magnitude that it did, the story. And I think the what came out in the report should not have resolved rather anything because, like, while it, it was a rope and it may seem, like I said, like a Jesse Smollett in, like, incident again, that's not, I, I don't consider it the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now I, I think it was, like, more of a situational, like, coincidental thing, even though it's, like, regardless, it's Bubba Watson. He's the only black NASCAR driver, and it happens to be in his garage. I think that's just, like, the over-the-top, like, even though, like, after we find out the reports that it's not necessarily, like, it was a target crime or something, I feel like it's just, like, why is it even popping up, you know? In a sense, like, why is this still happening? Exactly. And, like, NASCAR is a slow-evolving sport. Like, I've been a NASCAR fan all my life. Many people don't know that because I don't really say it. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you been hiding out of reps. <laughs> it's because, so, like, it's a sport built on bootlegging in the South. <clears throat> so there's a lot of white Southerners involved in the sport. And it wasn't until the 90s, the late, the mid to late 90s, where the sport started to change and reach more people. That's when Jeff Gordon came in. And a lot of people, a lot of fans hated him because he was a California kid dominating the sport. Mm-hmm. He was a kid, he wasn't a country kid with cowboy boots. He was a California kid with sneakers dominating the sport. So now we're just slowly moving to a phase. Now we got Bubba Wallace, NASCAR fans, a lot of them diehard Southerners. They don't like him. But now NASCAR is taking a stance stronger than a lot of these organizations. And all these fans are like, well, we're going to ban NASCAR. Okay, bye. But NASCAR is bringing in this new fan base like never before. I think everything that NASCAR has done within the last couple of weeks has been appropriate, applicable, and it shocked me. They're doing and how it applies to like, white southerners. I think even the Confederate flag being given that should have been done a long time ago. B, their support and backing of Bubba Wallace and all this, despite like them being the ones that told them that it was found, like it was the right thing to do. That's why you see the images of him crying in the car with everybody like pushing him along, like that's why, because he knows in a sport that is predominantly white, predominantly Southern, he's got that support now. Exactly. All right, moving on to today's important and must talked about topic, systemic versus systematic racism. It's being confused out in the media. I don't think a lot of people know the difference and it needs to be talked about. So first, What's the system? The system is a set of principles or procedures according to which something is done on an organized scheme or method, AKA the establishment that everybody likes to refer to or the government. Mm -hmm. Then we got systemic racism is the top. It's a form of racism which is embedded as normal practices within society or or an organization, it can lead to such issues as discrimination in criminal justice, employment, housing, health, 
care, polit- political power, education, and among other things. I'm going to read some statistics real quick. Um, wealth in the United States. Population of white, 77%. They control 90% of the wealth. African Americans, 13% population control 2.6% of the wealth. Um, African Americans are likely, are two times as likely to be unemployed. Black students are three times more than, are, are three times more likely than white students to be suspended for the same infractions. Blacks make up 13% of the population, but 40% of the prison population. Blacks are 18% fewer, are shown 18% fewer homes and 4% fewer rental units than whites. Black drivers are 30% more likely to be pulled over. And one study found that 67% of doctors have, have a bias against African-American patients which is a struggle we are fighting right now with COVID-19. Six stats right there. Thank you for those. So all those stats you said, those are all systemic racism. Systemic racism. This is like the, so the systemic is the overarching, it deals with the overarching, I don't, I don't know how to word it, like the overarching um, idea that the whole the whole system is is embedded with racism. I mean, a, a way to help me kind of like understand it, I think it's very like between the difference of systemic and systematic, it's very implicit versus explicit. So while they both represent the same system or in turn have their own systems, systemic racism is more of a system that while it may not have legal and like written laws or written policies towards um, racism, it in itself has practices throughout the years that have had an implicit racism in it. So while he brings up the idea of like a, a cop is supposed to arrest anybody that is performing a legal crime. However, like the stats that he's shown, it somehow has gotten to the point in which a black person is more likely to end up incarcerated than a white person. And that in itself would be more of a systemic racism problem than systematic. Mm-hmm. It's like zoning. Zoning, housing zoning is like a big uh, systemic racism problem that that occurs in all cities. Like, for example, minorities are more likely to be zoned near like factories or big waste plants. Like in like in LA, there's a large um, Hispanic community in in the commerce area. You know, that area has a lot of factories and a lot of metal plants and exposed to a lot of pollution. And they talk about it on the news every now and then that they're at a, like a, they're at a higher risk of getting cancer and stuff. And that's shown, that's uh, experienced everywhere. I know here in Baltimore, uh, the, the, the historic black community have, are still using pipes from like the 1800s. So Baltimore has been slow been uh, replacing pipes and constant sewage leaks be going on and stuff. So yeah, that's like two examples. One thing about systemic racism is that it's like you can't necessarily break a cycle that's been established for so long. So like 
we can vote, we can always protest, we can do all this, but like things like a cop racially profiling a Hispanic or a black over a white is something that's embedded in their justice system. So it's not like it's going to be, we vote this person out of office or this attorney and this chief or something switches, but it could switch to somebody who's following the same exact steps, just not as, uh, let me say like evident, evidently putting it out there or saying it, you know? That's the one thing I feel like is kind of like hindering is like you said in your stats that whites are 70, 70 percent of the population. They control 90 percent of wealth. Wealth controls pretty much the American economy, like anything that goes like literally people who can be bribed out of jail, like buy their way into things and like buy the way into elite world class stuff. So like when we as a minority don't have the same power or like a bit like uh, resources to do to like fix things it kind of just keeps falling under the same cycle with small hinders I feel like absolutely it's like it's like when Obama was elected into office everybody was expecting big change mm-hmm. in the little in the eight years he was in he was in office but people got realized the stuff that's led up to now took place over hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. big radical change like that, it takes hundreds of years. So, so much effort, so much change. I mean, it's also one of the reasons, like when you go to systemic or systematic, why you don't hear as much systematic anymore, which is more like kind of like as they're phrasing the explicit. Like you can reference and see a systemic racism happening. Like if you see it like a company or like a restaurant or anything like that saying, oh, we don't allow service to blacks. We don't allow service to indigenous people. Like that's an obvious representation of systematic racism. And that in itself is not around as much anymore, particularly in the parts like kind of some of us live in. Like I'm in Southern California, which is a pretty diverse population. Like that doesn't exist anymore around here. Or if you go to like someplace in the South, which I mean, none of us are really from. Like, that would be something in which you may find more likely because that's, I mean, like we talked about and talking about Bubba Wallace, like, that's a, a crowd that still flaunts the Confederate flag. But when you go to, that's why when you look at systemic racism and why everybody, that's been a major topic in all the protests going on, it's because that in turn is what pisses people off the most. Is like, it's apparent, it's there, but you can't see it as much. You don't. Like, it's not something you can fix tomorrow. That's the, that's a lot of where the aggression, I think, stems from. Yeah, yeah that's why people are finding the, uh, the voter suppression and chain and defunding the police and stuff. Because they just want change and they see how much money uh, the police departments are getting and not seeing the change necessary to become better as a force. It's, it's weird because, I mean, I was watching, I forgot what I was watching, but one of the comments that was made is, like, the police department is turning public service, so it's contradictory and rather, I would say, ironic that this still goes on, seeing that they are a public service. We, in turn, should be the ones controlling since they are protecting all of us. So that's why, like, you see a lot of the defunding police, a lot of the... Um, Man on the police because they in turn are supposed to be protecting the civil liberties of everybody. 
and they are in turn a public service department. And that and it, like that's why systemic racism is pissing a lot of people off and why it's still disgusting. If we abolished or not abolished, if we defunded the police, what do you think that would really look like? Because I feel like it, I don't think it's a good idea, personally. I personally don't think it's necessarily a good idea, but I don't also think it's a bad idea because I feel like, yes, you as a police force, you definitely need all you need money, of course, to buy new stuff and like fund things. But like, do you think they need a real? Do you really think they need a billion dollars in a whole like incentive like buying and getting new things? Like, you don't think that money could have went into a different community or a different uh, department that could help? Because we all know there's other things in the world that need to be fixed other than like funding the police more. Not saying that we can't, but like, I feel like there's, they should be looking into like agriculture and like lower communities, of course, and uh, education. Like our education system is so it's falling, it's it's going way south. Yeah, like it's not getting better. It's not like it's gonna get better. So I'm like, why don't we? We clearly see. I mean, I don't know. We clearly see, but like as a government, they're probably looking at a thousand other things. But like, they know that. It, evident problem is education in America. Like, people are really uneducated out here. So, like, I don't know why they don't have a agenda to really, like, fund that and, like, put a lot more effort into educating the future, because we're, we're literally the next up, next generation up, so. I think they need to allocate their resources better to training, and I don't think police train um, as much as they should. Because I was hearing, like, Navy SEALs, they train 18 months for a six-month deployment. And you got police officers who play like who train, like, a day or two for a year. Mm-hmm. And, like, they're, them police officers are at work every single day dealing with people from all walks of life. They're dealing with all types of situations, and they only get training for an hour or two. And like we all see these police officers looking overweight and out of shape. Oh. Like a lot of these police officers don't look fit to complete the day to day task of keeping the community safe. And I just feel like training is where it starts for them. Because a lot of them they get in that situation and they don't know what to do. That's why they just grab their gun. Okay. I think yeah, that's that's why I'm not so much as like defunding police, but rather the most obvious is police reform. And that's why I think the, the terming it as abolishing versus dismantling goes a long ways because I think abolishing police kind of gets the wrong message across. And like if you look at kind of the petition going around for SC, like getting rid of the LAPD, I don't think that's kind of right because like SC in itself is in an area South Central LA that historically is not the like is a little violent area but in turn like we do need the DPS we do need the LAPD around because like it's we got to know the area that we're in yeah I mean we've had I think Eric you were with me when we had discussions with uh it was like our freshman year we had discussions with some of the DPS officers do you remember that yeah like they they even offer like to bring us on a, a ride along if we wanted to see like what goes on in the area around us like that's that's kind of why like defunding them, I don't 
get as much as kind of reforms. And that's why I think dismantling and reforming may be a lot better approach. Because like Eric talks about, the education and the training goes a long ways and to show the lack of it and the very minuscule amount we have of it, that I think is definitely a major problem. Because I mean, you look at the kind of the, the countries that we kind of go against, you look at Norway and Germany who have police officers who go to academies for like three, four years of training. You don't, it, it's, when you look at all the protests going on and you see that everywhere is showing support for us, it's because they in turn don't face those same problems I think we do. Mm-hmm. It's because you've got countries like Germany, Norway, and countries kind of in Europe that they have their police officers set up correctly. Yeah. It's kind of like Coach Watts was talking about the other day, like when he talks about um, the, the kind of calls, the codes that each car comes in, like a code one, code two, code three. Like in no turn should it result in kind of like the situation in George Floyd. There is no reason that anybody in a situation like that should have to die. And I think that stems from the lack of training we get. Yeah, because there's been so many cases where I feel like a black person has died and you see like what the issue is or you see like you hear about like what the problem is and you're just like what resulted in a chokehold was resulted to him having to get a gun drawn on him before like de-escalating the situation in a different way like I feel like they should be able to handle things way more confidently rather than being able to just go right to that right hand like this like if that's your instant reaction that that's kind of scary as a police officer because you're going to be in situations where you're going to have to use it actually rather than using it to just kill someone because you think they're doing something wrong. Like when you're killing somebody that's not doing something wrong, it just makes the headline way worse. People aren't going to attack you on social media, the news, and then it's going to just follow you forever. But if you're handling situations much differently and say you tase someone in a sense, or you tackle them, you get them in arrest, you just put them arrested. There's no need for it to be like a big ordeal because if you just arrest him and he's he's fine, then it is what it is. But when you're killing people at a, like an alarming rate, like you said, like they're not going to the academy for a year or two. They're just going for a couple months, probably getting their getting their stuff, and then boom, they're in, they're in the field. They definitely should be in a like the reform should honor a process like where they get in there for like two to three years and like go through psych evaluations because clearly there's a lot of racism in the police in the justice system, and it's like either through a judge attorneys to the actual police officer so it's it's a whole pyramid of it that needs to like get reformed i mean one of the kind of one of the comments that you hear going around it, it, it's a job and a profession that should not have any bad apples but i think also what's kind of missed in a lot it's a profession and a job to which you shouldn't have to know what a police officer's name is like a good one and a great one is one you don't know what their name is Mm-hmm. You do. You don't see them on headlines. You don't see them on stuff like that. It's why, like, you look at kind of professions and major corporations that, like, you look at kind of Amazon and you look at all the workers who are doing the job of Amazon correctly and rightly and everything like that. And the only name you hear is Bezos, 
which is in turn should be kind of the only name you hear is like the chief of police because you know that everything going on under him is functioning properly is functioning like you shouldn't have to know everybody else's names and that's why i think like we call it a system because it is flowing correctly mm-hmm. um i'm gonna give the definition for systematic racism um fundam- fundamental to a predominant social economic or political practice where a sy- systematic no sy- yeah systematic applies to an approach systemic applies to the system itself so like one example uh, this is common it's like a recruiter recruiter rejects a, a resume or a job re- or a company rejects a resume from like an african-american who went to an hbcu even though they have all the credentials they reject them because they went to this institution and they're this color skin i think that's that's seen a lot in the workplace that's seen a lot on the university level i think especially in the past because now you have universities want to push the the their diversity agenda is mm-hmm. i get more inclusive because that's where the world is trending right now but like how di- how diverse are these universities and campuses really like what events are really going on on these on these college campuses that includes the whole student body. That reminds me too. Whenever I open up like a, a college like brochure, you'll always see like they'll they'll make an effort to show every possible race like in the front. But I, I've learned to look past that. You gotta you gotta you gotta think what are they actually doing in the day-to-day activities, not just what they're showing to the incoming people who just graduated from high school. They they put on a face of this school's for everyone. It's all inclusive, but behind the scenes is what we need to focus on. It's what's happening in the daily activities that does not fall in line with what they're showing on the brochures, which is every single race all smiling, all laughing together. Yeah. I'm trying to think like when I came to SC or like I not necessarily came, but like when I seen like the brochure, I came for uh orientation. I was, I was met with like my group. I had like, I was in the group, like a small group when you're like taking towards the campus and everything. My group was diverse pretty much. Like I had one white girl, like a black person, Hispanic, two Filipinos, and like somebody from I think it was from like London or something. And I had a diverse group, but like, am I gonna say USC is like a super diverse place? No, because. I'm looking at the. I'm looking at my population every day. I have class every day, so I know I, it's a predominantly white school. But I will say that SC has made an honest effort into making sure the diversity is kind of like right, rate, raised or like risen over the years. Like since my freshman year to now, yeah. I see a more influx of African Americans in the school, like off off the top. Like I remember walking in this year and like. I'm seeing a lot more black people than usual. And I was like, that's good. And I'm like, I, I think that's good out of SC. Like, I think is one of the biggest things that they're like actually willing to move forward with things. And they're not kind of just putting on a fake aid 
as much as it probably could be a fake aid, but I feel like they've taken a lot of steps into trying to be inclusive with everyone. It's also like uh, you kind of mentioned the progression towards including a lot of diversity. I want to say that USC like has now like the highest percentage of diversity of like any university in the nation now. Right? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's pretty good. I think it's up there. Or look at it. Yeah, Asians sixteen point nine percent, blacks five percent. That can go up. Hispanics fourteen percent, whites twenty nine percent. So there are some schools where it's like seventy five percent. So this is pretty good. I yeah. knew we were outnumbered, but dang, <laughs> right? I was like five percent. Five percent. This is as of fall twenty nineteen. Internationals is twenty five percent, and other is eight percent. Very international population you have a big international program look at parkside parkside is like the international residence hall like that that's what it's labeled i just don't like how they put them in the back right they put them so far only problem with them like why they don't put them in the back they should have put them right next to right uh over there at burn print or whatever exactly right in the center oh well at least they got the best food though facts they do have the best dining though that's just i mean Kind of just where I live at SC, that's just the farthest trek. So, like, a lot of times I'm just at the village. But, I mean, in the past, oh, yeah, Parkside has the best breakfast. It's not even close. So, like, on Saturdays, best breakfast. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I kind of was talking to Eric about this uh, before we started. But what, I mean, we talk about the progression and SC trying to include more diversity. But kind of what um, steps do you see SC taking in response to systemic racism that may or may not be apparent and occurring at SC because it's obviously an institution which systematic racism is not allowed and not um, like accepted whatsoever. So what steps can you see SC doing to work towards systemic racism that may or may not be? Well, as a university as a whole, I'm not sure what they're really doing right now because I really haven't been tuned into that because of the UBSA and and this and everything going on in the athletic department that we're doing to be more inclusive, be more aware, spread awareness and stuff. But um, I think hopefully the athletic department will just take the lead and the university will just uh, branch off, off, off what we're doing that would be great, to be honest, since we're viewed as the leaders of the community. Everybody comes to our sporting events and stuff. Everybody is intrigued to hear what we're going to say. So if the university could just feed off what is what is going on in the athletic department, it would be great. I agree. It's, it's weird because seeing that we're in I won't call it a bubble of USC athletics, but seeing that that's kind of where a lot of our time is spent, it's specifically on the track team in which, like, you look at everybody on the track team, we are every single race that, every single race, every single just difference in us is apparent, but we all, like, respect, we all know, we all love each other. So, like, in turn, I think athletics as a whole, I mean, you look at kind of what's going on in Iowa and the football program like we don't we don't hear about that especially being in southern california and like sc we don't hear about that so i think i agree 
in which we need to take the lead and show that we can be a representative of the entire population at SC. It's like, I do, I mean, I like what's going on with, uh, it's UBSA or USBA? UBSA. UBSA. Um, I do like that that's been created and that's been um, on the upbringing. And I think, you mind taking a second kind of like explain what it is? All right, so it's the United Black Student Athlete Association. Um, I think there's a few other schools that have them, or many other schools that have them. But uh, it's basically associated within the athletic department to unite the African Americans. Or, well, in this case, we have more than African Americans. We have anybody, really. We have all walks of life. Um, but yeah, but we're basically coming together and finding finding ways to empower the, the black community on campus to spread awareness, um, raise money, do community service outreach, um, voter, um, encourage voting and stuff. We're in the groundworks now. Um, officers and chairs are going to be voted on pretty soon. Um, the mission statement is out. Hold on, let me read there. They are on. Let me give their handle. You can follow them at, at SC underscore UBSAA. Um, a lot of information is going to be sent out pretty soon as we're moving pretty fast. So I can't wait for everything to materialize and get back on campus so we can actually make some positive change yeah. in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. I feel like that group got started moving so quick, like after that first meeting. I feel like after that one, I was like, looked up again. And I was like, they got a mission statement. <laughs> I was like, looked it up again. Off. Bro, I was like, that's beautiful. It got approved so fast and it took off. I feel like I'm glad SC is like moving this way because in LA, I feel like we're like one of the big, we're one of like the Lakers in terms of like, not like notoriety around here like usc is like a staple you think of la you think usc la lakers clippers whatever but it's like if you see the college moving forward with the inclusive and like the black lives matter movement making a black student association for athletes and like other programs they're probably going to have in place and stuff i feel like that's just going to be a progressive step that other schools other like teams programs, whatever you want to call it, organizations are going to look at. And I feel like they might not necessarily make a move right now, but later down the line, you can look at USC's trickle-down effect on, like, how they've made an impact. And, like, you could possibly probably see down in the future, like, other things happening, like student associations at predominantly white institutes and stuff like that moving forward. Because when you see a big, like, a Titan program do that, I feel like everybody else wants to follow the same way because people are going to start gravitating towards SC. They're going to be like, okay, they're more progressive than this school, and this school is in the South. This is in LA. I can do a lot more out here. So I feel like SC is just putting themselves in a good position right now. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I mean you kind of look at the steps that SC has done um, towards reform at the school as well. Look at what happened to the VKC. Like, that was uh, a petition. Week two. Yeah, that petition. I think. Right. Next. Week. 
Yeah. I mean, it, that's that's why I think SC does a good job in um, recognizing, a good job in listening to its students. Mm-hmm. That's also one of the reasons why it can be a spotlight, like you mentioned, um, because we are in such a diverse area, especially in like Southern California. Like it is, it definitely can be a spotlight for the rest of the nation. Yeah. What's also interesting too is the difference between private universities and public universities. So with USC, I'm pretty sure USC is able to impose their own rules and regulations while other public universities have to go through, have to get it approved by like the government of the state first. So I think we're at a benefit here to where we can make change more quickly because we don't have to follow like a, a certain set of state rules necessarily the way other public schools have to. Yeah. yeah. We don't gotta go through the loops and holes. We just be like, hey, we're doing this for this reason and because of this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, like, one of the reasons you uh, like kind of attuning to that point, I mean, you look at what's happening with SC saying we're coming back to school uh, with COVID going around, and you look at kind of the UCs, which haven't really made a notion because all of the UCs depend on the UC regions. Yeah. So, like, that's why in, in talks, like, prior to the message from SC coming out, like, I was a little bit more optimistic that we would have the opportunity to go back because we don't have to deal with that, like you mentioned. I'm still hit because I'm back, though. They're talking about we, our cases going up. Even though the death rate isn't as bad or, like, isn't rising as much, it's still, like, I'm not trying to get the virus. Yeah. I mean, it... I know that. <laughs> the odds of getting it are so much higher now that I feel like if we go back and it's not contained a little bit, we're going to be going through a test once a week. Everybody's going to have to go. Like, I don't know. I feel like it's too, it's too hazardous. That was off topic, though. I feel like not a lot of people are going to be back on campus since all classes will be offered online. What? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. They will be all online and in person. Yeah. And so we you have the option? We may have to re-register. Oh! Oh, I didn't know that. We may. Fingers crossed we don't have to do that. <laughs> no, I just got my last class in like two weeks ago because I had to re- because all of it got messed up. I had to change out one class a couple weeks ago, too. But I pray we don't have to be registered. I think that, like, when it comes to, like, a 100-person lecture hall, if you have that, like, that is 100% going to be online. That's but the, main, sure. the, main why, the main reason why all classes will be online because these international students who can't come back. Oh, <laughs> I didn't think about that. All the, because these visas, people got renewed their visas and stuff. And is it a travel ban? I think it's still I think normal. that's... In, that's part of it too. Yeah. So there's like some people saying they won't be able to come back till October. Oh damn. So like, oh no, there's gonna be a lot of massive changes. I just pray that we don't have to be registered. I'm praying because I don't want to go online again though. Even though like I got good grades, bro. Online class is just so much more demanding, and it's so less work. It don't make sense. Oh, I'm doing the city on my computer. Yeah, but like I think like labs and like little discussions and little classes will be in person. Yeah. So thank God for that. Yeah. I mean it I mean I'm kind of from the area, so 
Like it, it's not too far of a trek for me. And one of the things, I mean, you look at all the stories going out of like 29 Clemson players or 28 Clemson people testing positive and like 30 LSU. Um, one of the things I think that may be, especially in that like department case, a lot more beneficial is they know where we are when we're at campus. It's like, it's kind of, in my opinion, a little easier to contain. Mm. Yeah, it's easier to contain when everybody's back on campus. Yeah. Like, I, don't, I don't get why everybody was freaking out when they they got tested positive. It was like, okay, they're on campus. They'll be good in two weeks and probably won't get it again. Yeah. I mean, they're... And they're not going anywhere. They're good. Sure. They know where they are. And one of the problems is they never mention how many people are asymptomatic. They never do. Oh, LSU, they just said 30 people quarantined. Yeah. They they, yeah, they said quarantined how many actually had it and how many were asymptomatic. Five people who had it. <laughs> I wonder what it's going to be like if, say, we have a meet, right? Somebody, what if they probably testing on Monday? What if somebody gets it? Like, we find out they get it Tuesday. All right, we're leaving for Thursday for a meet. And we're at the meet. What, like, what are the things though, like, before, meet, before we even get to go to the airport, we don't know how they're going to protocol everybody because we don't know who he's been in contact, who they've hopefully, been. Hopefully, the vaccine's in by time. By that time. Hopefully. <laughs> that, see, we're, we're looking, you're looking down in like February. But I'm just saying though, because that's a possibility. But like football, like the football team. Oh yeah, one of them get it like after they play a away game, they boom. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, it. And then if the whole team has it, what happens? You have to sit out for a whole week, two, two weeks. Everybody has to sit out. It's a minimum two weeks. You have to be quarantined for two weeks. I mean, you're you're gonna be stopped doing symptoms. I don't know the number. Isn't it like a week? Yeah. Yeah. But you have to be quarantined for two. Mm -hmm. I'm glad I ain't caught it yet. So, like, I mean, <laughs> with Eric, so if one of us gets it, we're living in the same place and just not seeing each other. <laughs> hey, like, you have a roommate, you're literally not going to be able to see your roommate for a week or two. <laughs> You're in the same apartment, can't even see each other. you like, don't touch that pen. I used it. <laughs> <laughs> Being ass messy. No, that's. Are they allowing on campus housing? Uh, I, I think say yes. I think the, better. I think the word on the street is everybody will get their own room. So like, yeah, you don't have to share with anybody. That's smart. Yeah. So everybody get their own room and stuff. I would have moved back on campus. They would have gave me that option. <laughs> so. <laughs> Hey, I miss y'all, man. Miss you too, man. You too, man. This sucks, man. This sucks. It really do. All right, people. For the next episode, you will see none of our faces. You will see four fresh faces. And we have a very, very, very special guest. You don't want to miss it. It's going to be a great podcast. We'll see y'all in two weeks. <laughs> Peace out, everybody. All right. All right.